Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Emily Campagno. I'm Guy Benson. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, August 21st, 2023, on Mike Emanuel. The first GOP presidential debate Wednesday evening on Fox is expected to be enormously important to candidates seeking breakout moments. One expert says winning the Republican nomination will take true skill for a candidate other than former President Trump. Whoever succeeds in winning the GOP nomination, if they're going to defeat Trump, and it's not clear that they can, is going to be someone who can consolidate the not MAGA and soft MAGA voters. And that takes a different strategy than trying to out MAGA Donald Trump. I'm Dave Anthony. More schools are shifting to a four-day week, and that may not make the grade. So most of our research, other research around the country that's been done recently, has often shown kind of you know, declines in achievement after schools make this switch. And I'm Carol Roth. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. A critical week in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Republican candidates will be on the debate stage on Wednesday evening, hoping for a moment to ignite their campaigns. Vivek Ramaswamy is hoping to capitalize on his growth in recent polls. I'm not running against anybody in this race. It's part of why you don't hear me criticize many of my competitors, period, Donald Trump included. I think we have to, as a party, start talking less about the who more about the what and the why. What do we stand for and why do we stand for it? On Fox News Sunday, former governor and former ambassador Nikki Haley said this is a launch point for the campaign. Once this debate happens this week, it's off to the races. That's when you're going to start to see people really focus in on different candidates, look at what their options are. Most believe former President Trump will be a no-show Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie says that is a mistake on Mr. Trump's part. We need to make the case, any one of us who are on that stage, we need to make the case to Republican voters why we're the best person to beat Joe Biden. And, and I think by Donald Trump not being there, he's showing everybody what a problematic candidate he is against Joe Biden. But Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel says it isn't just about reaching GOP voters. So it really is going to be how do our candidates appeal to independent voters? Independent voters now make up 42% of the electorate. And that's why this debate is so critical to start our conversation, not just with Republican primary voters, but with independent voters who are disillusioned with the Biden administration. For now, candidates are looking to have a moment that will connect with potential voters. Every debate uh, that you've seen in previous primaries, somebody has emerged as the star of the debate, had the great moment, had made a good impression. And it's particularly true with first debates. Mark Thiessen is a former White House speechwriter and is a Fox News contributor. Where a lot of these candidates are new to the Republican electorate. They've seen them in snippets on Fox News and other places. They've seen quotes from them. Maybe they've seen an interview, but they haven't seen them for an extended period of time. And we've got a lot of new uh, candidates. And so this is the first chance to make a first impression. You're going to have, you know, 
Mike Pence, Tim Scott, uh, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy, all these rising stars in the party, people who, uh, who any one of whom could crush Joe Biden if they were nominated and, and received the Republican nomination. And Republicans should to look at that and ask themselves, why are we not picking one of these guys? <laughs> or gals, in the case of, of Nikki Haley. Why, why are we not uh, selecting one of these talented people who could lead our party into the future? Why, you know, you've got a country where seven in 10 uh, Americans say they don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. And the Democratic Party isn't having a contested primary, notwithstanding RFK's uh, entry into it. The Republican Party is. And I think that it's a good chance for them to not be overshadowed by Trump and to have a chance to make their case to the American people and for, Amer for, for Republicans to look at that and say, you know, that guy really made a really good impression. He would be a great president uh, or she would be a great president and consider that. A lot of this race has been all about former President Trump. If you're a candidate, how do you stand out when so much of the news coverage is all about him? It's very hard. Uh, it's very hard for two reasons. One, because he's dominating the news because of all the indictments. And two, because the indictments create a rallying effect for him. Because there's a, you know, if you look at the polls, go through the, the early states, He's getting about 44% in Iowa. He's getting about 43%, 42% in, in New Hampshire, about 43% in South Carolina. That means 58, 57, 56% of Republican voters want somebody else. They just haven't consolidated around a single person. It's not clear that they will. But a lot of Republicans who don't necessarily want Donald Trump to be the nominee, or he isn't necessarily their first choice for the nominee, feel a almost tribal pull to rally around him because the left is attacking him, because they think that he is without, with good cause, they believe that he is being persecuted by a politicized justice system. I mean, think about this. Next week, it's gonna be 91 counts against him, a thousand years in jail. Even the Unabomber only had 13 counts, right? Mm -hmm. The 91 counts against Donald Trump. That's such overkill. That's such a politicized targeting of him that a lot of people are rallying around him. And the problem becomes that it may, the, the indictments suck up all the oxygen for the other candidates, make it more likely that Republicans will nominate him, but they also drive away independents and swing voters because this election is going to be decided by a couple hundred thousand people in five states, swing voters. Uh, it's not going to be decided by Republican primary voters. It's not going to be decided by Democratic primary voters. It's going to be decided by swing voters. And these indictments and, and all of these things, which most people, which a majority think are serious, and, uh, and a majority of the swing voters think are credible, drive them away from Trump. So it's almost a perfect storm for Democrats where he, uh, the Republicans rally around him and it drives swing voters away. Let's dig in on some of these individual candidates. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's long been trailing behind President Trump in the polls. His numbers have fallen off in the polls, but I had a conservative tell me today that his ground game in Iowa is second to none. Your thoughts on DeSantis at this point in the race? Um, his ground game is important. Going to all 99 counties, very important. This is early. Again, he mm -hmm. could have a great performance in the debate and, and settle all the, the concerns about him. But, I mean, to be honest with you, he's had a terrible campaign. This is a guy who ran a perfect gubernatorial race just a few months ago. And out of the box, he's been uh, he's he's stumbled uh, and done poorly. And part of the problem is if you look at the GOP electorate, there's basically three buckets. There's about a quarter of the electorate who are hard MAGA, who are pro Trump and are never going to not going to support anybody else in the primary. There's about a quarter who are not MAGA, 
who are not going to support Trump under any circumstances. And then about half of the electorate is persuadable, soft MAGA, right? He's mm-hmm. been trying to win over the hard MAGA voters who are never going to leave Trump instead of consolidating the not MAGA voters and the soft MAGA voters who are persuadable and inseparable from Trump. Whoever succeeds in winning the GOP nomination, if they're going to defeat Trump, and it's not clear that they can, is going to be someone who can consolidate the not MAGA and soft MAGA voters. And that takes a different strategy than trying to out MAGA Donald Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy has gained traction in recent polls. He's the second choice for a lot of voters, 22 percent in a recent Fox News poll. Do you think he can build on that? And what about when the other candidates turn their aim at him? Well, so he's an inter- he's a really interesting character. He is he is mm-hmm. connected with a lot of voters. He's very articulate. That 10 principles that he put out the other day, I think 99 percent of Republicans would agree with each of those principles. He's been I mean, his his foreign policy pronouncements have been dumb to the point of disqualifying, you know, saying that he you know, we don't want to we don't want Putin to lose in Russia that will defend Taiwan until 2028 when we achieve semiconductor independence. And after that, they're on their own. These are not things that a serious candidate for commander in chief would think, much less say out loud. Uh, so he but he's young and he's uh, and he's new and he's not going to get the nomination, but he's making a uh, he's making an impression. A number of other candidates like Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, big names, but seem to be stuck in the single digits so far when looking at the polls. Why do you think this is and what do they need to do to potentially change that momentum? Um, They have to have a good debate performance. I mean, you know, it's sort of all of this up until now, all of this polling and all of this discussion, it's sort of like before the Super Bowl, when everybody's sitting around and comparing uh, the, the candidates on paper and then the game starts. And things happen. And there's a reason why you play the game. And any one of them has a chance to have a breakout performance in this debate. Uh, so a lot, I mean, they, a lot depends on this. This is when when people will give them a fresh look. Mike Pence is suffering from the fact that he did one of the most courageous things that any American politician has done in my lifetime. And Donald Trump has absolutely uh, excoriated him for it. And there's a number of people who he's convinced in the Republican Party that he betrayed uh, Trump, that he betrayed the party and will never vote for him. I hope he can overcome that. Tim Scott is somebody who I see as like the future of the Republican Party. He's hopeful, optimistic, has a great story, great ideas. He's he's like a black Ronald Reagan. Um, and I, th- I think he's got a chance to shine in this debate. I've seen him speak in person a few times. He's incredibly charismatic, incredibly good on his feet. I mean, I don't know if you saw when he was on The View where he just absolutely eviscerated the ladies around the table, uh, but yep. did it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile the way Ronald Reagan would have. Um, I'd like to see what, what he does in this debate, and he could take off as well. Do you expect former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie to spend a lot of his time on the debate stage arguing that it can't be Trump? I think so. I think he's uh, sort of on a kamikaze mission to take down Trump. <laughs> And but one of the things about kamikazes is they uh, they die in the in the uh, in the strike. Uh, And I think that's where Chris Christie is headed. I think that he he is trying to take on Trump to call out his his failures and flaws uh, and warn Republicans that nominating him is is the perfect way to guarantee four more years of Joe Biden or worse yet, uh, another year of Joe Biden and three years of Kamala Harris or some combination thereof. Uh, but I think he's on a kamikaze mission. Is there anyone you think may surprise viewers most, maybe a candidate like Governor Bergram, who viewers don't know as well as some others? 
Yeah, I think uh, Bergam, I, I mean, I don't think that Bergam has a very good chance of, of emerging from this debate headed towards the nomination. But I think that he's making an impression on on a lot of people. I think he's actually been I've, I've seen a few interviews with him uh, I, and he's impressive. And people just, did, you know, when Bergam announced, people were like, who? <laughs> outside of the Republican Governors Association and the people uh, of uh, North Dakota. Not a lot of people knew who he was. And now, you know, he's he's making a name for himself. And look, Ronald Reagan, you know, lost the first time he ran for president, too. He didn't win the primary. And so Brigham is making a name for himself and he he needs to perform well and show that he has a future in the Republican Party. Is there a central issue Wednesday night that you're looking forward to hearing about? Do you think it's going to be the economy, inflation? Should I say Bidenomics? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's the number one issue for most people. I mean, if you look at the polls, the the American people, despite, you know, it, it's a real huge, huge mistake by the Biden administration to embrace this Bidenomics uh, argument, because I want to say that something like three and uh, only three in 10 Americans approve of his economic performance. And they they say that they are personally majority of Americans say they are personally worse off thanks to Biden's policies. So embracing Bidenomics is like uh, is like embracing, uh, you know, the, the the narrative that you've destroyed people's lives. <laughs> People just don't give them credit. And so I think the problem we have with Trump as the nominee, if, if he does end up emerging with the nominee, is that Donald Trump, as always, wants to make the election about himself. And it's mm-hmm. all going to be about 2020. It's all going to be about uh, the charges against him that are going to be that he's going to be fighting during the campaign. And we need to make the election about Joe Biden. We need to make the election about Joe Biden's policies and the disasters. He, I mean, I don't think there's a single president in my lifetime, except for maybe Jimmy Carter, who has unleashed more simultaneous disasters on the American people than Joe, in four years than Joe Biden has. And if we're talking about anything else other than Joe Biden, then we're making a mistake. And that's the problem is that Trump doesn't want to talk about Joe Biden. He, you know, imagine if Trump had spent the last three years talking about Joe Biden's record and how great things were when he was president as opposed to talking about the election, the 2020 election. He'd be in a, he, not only would he have no Republican challengers, he'd have a double digit lead over, over Joe Biden right now, but he can't do that. And that's why making him the nominee is a suicide pact for the Republican party. Former White House speechwriter and Fox News contributor, Mark Thiessen, grateful for your time and analysis today. Have a great week. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Carol Roth with your Fox News commentary coming up. It's that time of year. Kids returning to classrooms. Some started going earlier this month. Others are back this week. I love the first day. It's absolutely fabulous. Though parents don't necessarily love the price tag. The National Retail Federation estimates Americans are spending $41 billion in back-to-school shopping. A record which averages for each household. With kids in elementary school through high school, 
$890. And Fox Business Network's Lydia Hu says that covers... All the basics that you're going to need. You know, papers, pen, computers, electronics. It's $25 higher than it was last year. Though some parents don't have to buy as many new clothes. Kids in more schools only go four days a week now. Nearly 900 districts across America have made that switch to deal in part with teacher shortages. But the report cards haven't been as good. It's growing rapidly. You know, it's kind of doubled in size in the number of schools we've seen nationwide over the past decade. Paul Thompson is an associate professor of economics at Oregon State University studying the four-day school week. Since 2019, we've seen about a 40% increase in the number of schools using uh, this model. Um, and recently, mostly around this question of how can we try to retain and recruit teachers? Yeah, obviously, that's one element of this we can get into. But let's just go into the logistics. Which day do they not do? Do kids have Mondays off typically? Do they have Fridays off? So the majority of schools take the Friday off. You know, if they have athletics or other things, you know, that's the traditional day where those are often um, being conducted, but we do see a smaller number of schools taking a Monday off. Right, right. It would be tied to a weekend in some way. What about the school day itself? Of those days, I mean, obviously in a lot of states there are minimums, the number of days, the number of hours kids have to be in a classroom. States are kind of the gatekeeper here of which, you know, schools are able to make this switch, right? You know, if they switch from kind of minimum number of instructional days like 175, 180 days per year and switch to these minimum number of instructional hours. Yeah. Uh, we see schools often decreasing the number of contact hours that students have in front of a teacher, often you know, three to five hours per week being lost as a result of this switch. But many of those declines still fit within these kind of minimum instructional hours. Um, and so schools are increasing the school day on the other four days, but it seems to be kind of minimal increases, like 20 for 30 minutes right. uh, per day, which doesn't seem to kind of compensate for that, you know, lost full instructional day. With the loss of instructional time in all the research you guys have been doing that dates back several years, what have you found as far as student achievement? So most of our research, other research around the country that's been done recently has often shown kind of you know, declines in achievement after schools make this switch. And almost all of those achievement declines can be linked to this drop in instructional hours. So we looked at this in Oregon where schools were losing about three or four hours per week. Uh, and those almost translated directly to the achievement declines uh, that we saw. Um, and we've looked at this kind of nationally as well. And what we see is that, you know, schools that have the lowest levels of instructional time that make this switch to the four-day school week model, those are the places where we see negative achievement effects. Okay. Right? Schools that kind of maintain instructional time or at least maintain somewhat of an adequate level of instructional time that close to what it would have been under a five-day model, we don't see any change in achievement. What grade levels have you studied? Uh, so we've looked at this, you know, across the spectrum of grades from, you know, kindergarten to third grade. A bulk of the research is mostly third through eighth grade. And then a smaller set of literature has also looked at high schoolers. Right. Okay. And so what we see is that, you know, the biggest negative declines are happening uh, in achievement for elementary and middle school. Right. These are the students who aren't doing extracurriculars or things on that Friday already. High school students 
sometimes the switch to the four-day school week model can recapture some of that lost time for, you know, athletics or other extracurriculars. And so high schoolers don't have these big achievement declines like we see uh, for uh, elementary and middle school students, right? So most school districts are implementing this district-wide, uh, and maybe it really makes the most sense to think about this in a high school model, not so much for younger kids. But as far as the, the, the loss of a, for students and achievement, are, is it math? Is it science? Is it everything? Reading? Um, you know, so we've looked mostly at, at math and reading, um, and it seems kind of across the board, right? You know, uh, it's lost time in school. Uh, one thing we don't know is kind of how much time is lost to, you know, each different subject. Uh, we've looked at this a little bit, um, and it seems that most of the time that's being lost is in some of these tested subjects, um, like math and, and reading. Um, and so it makes sense that if you're losing that time, uh, you know, in front of the teacher, uh, that's where we'd see decline, right? If we looked at other test scores, if we had, you know, information on that, I'm assuming we'd see kind of very similar declines, right? Because this is kind of an across the board cut in the amount of time students are in front of teachers, and especially for elementary kids, um, right? Where they're learning in a home classroom, right? It's not like they're you know, losing out on specific subjects like you would maybe at, at a high school level. You know, we're just getting through what COVID did with schools closed, with Zoom school, which was really difficult for a lot of students and for parents and for teachers. Everybody had a hard time with it. And we've seen declines coming out of that in math, in reading for students. How does that correlate with what you see with a shift to a four-day schedule? Anything at all? These things correlate really closely together, but we think about the four-day school week as being a much smaller scale uh, setting and maybe one that is more likely to occur, uh, you know, moving forward compared to what we saw with COVID, which was this kind of very rare uh, event. Something we saw was extremely problematic, as you said, for both parents and, and uh, teachers and students. Um, and something we likely, I don't think, will see, uh, you know, schools turning to again, uh, you know, you know, anytime because of all the issues that, that were raised during it. Now the teachers, when we first started talking, you talked about how this is good for teacher retention. We have seen schools lose teachers. Some teachers have left the profession, probably for some of the stress that COVID caused. Four-day week, pretty attractive. So on the other side of the coin, that's the big selling point, isn't it? That is the biggest motivation for this switch from the school district perspective. Um, you know, traditionally, schools had made this switch for things like cost savings, right? And we did some research that showed, well, actually doesn't save them very much money uh, at all. Um, and now we've kind of seen them shift and say, well, the biggest need we have is trying to fill teacher vacancies or retain high quality teachers in our district. Are the salaries um, about the same? Even... Are, are Paul, are they the same when you talk about a four day salary versus a five day salary? So salaries, instructional costs basically remain the same, right? You know, teacher contact days are identical in most cases under a four or five day model. It's just that students aren't in the classroom uh, that additional day per week, but it's used for grading time or prep time for teachers, right? Um, we hear anecdotal evidence that there's more applications coming into districts after they make this switch. Whether it's effective at keeping you know, high-quality teachers in these districts or keeping teachers at all, 
uh, you know, in the profession. Uh, that's something that's still kind of, uh, you know, an open question. Hopefully, you know, us researchers can get some evidence out there, uh, you know, soon uh, for schools to make more kind of informed decisions around this question. Parents, not the easiest thing to deal with if you have a working parent situation, whether it's one parent or even both, to have to deal with now my son or daughter doesn't go to school on Fridays or Mondays. And I got to go to work. Child care becomes a bigger issue now. Definitely. Yeah. You know, child care is something, you know, that I think a lot of, uh, you know, parents are worried about. Um, you know, some districts say, you know, child care wasn't an issue. You know, we have a lot of intergenerational families in this community. Um, but that may not be the norm uh, for all communities making this switch. Um, and there's been some research out there from, uh, you know, a, a few researchers in this space showing that when Fort Hill uh, you know, come into a local community, uh, we see maternal labor supply kind of falling, you know, mother's employment, work hours, salary, uh, you know, kind of falling as a result, uh, maybe to take, you know, the bigger burden of childcare uh, as they shift away from, you know, that happening in the school to now happening at home. And then there's this issue of, well, if, if you can't find child care and you have to work, uh, well, then what are these you know, uh, children doing if they're unsupervised on that day off? Uh, and so, you know, things like juvenile crime or, you know, uh, risky behaviors, drug, alcohol use. Research has shown that there's increases in, in all of those uh, in local areas when there's a switch. What about, uh, what about opening the schools and letting the kids go to school just not have any classes to do? This is just a place to go. So, you know, some schools do provide these kind of off-day uh, opportunities, uh, like remedial education or enrichment activities, or sometimes there's kind of dedicated child care. Uh, but that's a small minority of schools that are offering uh, those services, right? And that comes down to kind of two main reasons, right? One uh, is financial, right? It, it, it costs money to, to do that. Uh, and traditionally, right, again, I said, you know, many of these uh, motivations were cost related. And so it really was kind of against those motivations to kind of offer services on the off day if it, if it costs additional funds. Uh, and so many schools kind of say it's not financially viable to, to offer these services. And then second, uh, some schools offered these initially, uh, but there's very low participation. If some superintendent called you and said, what should I do? What should I consider to try to avoid that when I make the switch to four days? What would your answer be? The biggest thing we can uh, recommend from, you know, the research uh, that's out there now uh, is maintaining the structural time in some way, right? So either that's, you know, sufficiently lengthening the other four school days, uh, you know, providing this type of remedial or enrichment instruction opportunities on the day off of school or after school. Um, there are some schools that have started to do kind of asynchronous virtual learning on the day off instead of nothing, right? And so finding some unique way to kind of maintain instructional time or keep instructional time as close to, you know, consistent on a five to four day, you know, week, I think is the biggest thing if achievement is the main goal. Professor Paul Thompson, Oregon State University, Associate Professor of Economics, studying the four day school week. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.
Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, President Biden and First Lady Dr. Jill Biden are scheduled to fly to Maui to meet with first responders and view recovery efforts from the deadly wildfires there. Wednesday, the first Republican presidential debate takes place in Milwaukee. The GOP hopefuls will take questions from Fox's Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. Those participating have had to meet polling and fundraising thresholds. Former President Trump has indicated through social media that he likely won't take part. You can listen to the debate at foxnewsradio.com. Thursday, the Labor Department will provide the latest update on unemployment claims. Friday is the deadline set by Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis for all 19 defendants in the election interference case to surrender for booking. Former President Trump and 18 of his allies are facing felony charges accused of attempting to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Carol Roth. What's on your mind? A video making the rounds on social media showed the latest tactic in China's formalized system to control its population, social credit. Raise the volume on the video and you hear a siren blaring. The alert is what reportedly happens when someone with bad financial credit, a massive social credit violation in China, phones you. The accompanying message purportedly warns, I mean, kindly asks, you to urge the person on the other line to pay their debts. Do you think that could never happen in America? That only a communist party would use technology, coercion, and social pressure to conform behaviors and even take away your wealth-building opportunities? Well, think again. This Chinese-style social credit system has already landed in America. It may not be as formalized with number and letter grades, but the essence of the evolution of social credit married with technology and social acceptance keeps Americans just a stone's throw away from those outcomes. There's an evolution to social credit, which starts with cancel culture, moves to an informal state-adjacent system, and eventually becomes a full-blown state-run system like the Chinese are building out. These social credit initiatives come for your freedoms, including your wealth. They attack your social standing and access, that is, the opportunities for you to create wealth. They come after your livelihood, that is, your path to wealth. And most directly, they even come after your assets, which is your literal wealth, as well as your legacy and your family's future. During the COVID era, these social credit-enabled attacks were out in force. If you didn't take the vaccine or you didn't wear a mask, you may have found yourself ridiculed on social media. Your family was told not to include you in Thanksgiving and Christmas celebrations. You weren't allowed to enter a restaurant, once those were allowed to be open by mandate, and participate in society. The Biden administration issued an executive order that in some cases forced and in others coerced businesses to take jobs away from thousands of individuals who didn't comply with their vaccine orders, many of whom had been branded heroes and essential workers just months earlier. 
It may not have had a siren accompany it, but the objective was clear, labeling you as socially unacceptable. We are remarkably close to a place whereby acting outside the preferred narrative, not agreeing with the mob, having a bad day, or engaging in wrong think, like not complying with government directives, criticizing the president, or being a gun owner, the government can penalize you. Potential penalties could remove your freedoms, big and small, including your ability to earn a living, access your savings, and provide for your family. Becoming more like China isn't a good outcome for Americans. So we must stand up for and protect our God-given rights from the government, from the digital sphere, and from any social credit initiatives that may threaten them. Because if this happens, you will own nothing, but you definitely won't be happy. This is Carol Roth, and this piece is adapted from my New York Times best-selling book, You Will Own Nothing, Your War with a New Financial World Order and How to Fight Back. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.